reading is taken from Psalm 32, which can be found on page 560 of the Church Bible. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of, the, of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will conf confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not, like, do not be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Well, we're going to look at that psalm straight away, so I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Verse 8 of our psalm says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Father, we pray that that verse would be true of us this evening, that we would be aware that you are instructing us through your word and teaching us that the things we hear today and the way we're encouraged to live would be the way that you counsel us with your loving eye on us. We thank you that as we come to read these things and consider these things, we know that you are looking at us with love. So please help us to respond in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, well I'm, a, uh, I'm a bit of a fan of hide-and-seek. I don't play it very often. Uh, um, I'm not a professional. Um, but when I used to play it more and I really decided to go for it, I'm quite a decent hider. So we, we played a game of hide-and-seek. I would recommend having a go at hide-and-seek as an adult. It is still quite fun. I remember a number of years ago playing it at a friend's house, and uh, I folded myself up onto the top shelf of their airing cupboard, which I was quite pleased that it held. I only thought about that later. And covered myself over with towels. And many people opened the door, looked directly at me, didn't see me, closed the door and kept looking. It was a, it was a fantastic game, uh, if somewhat warm. <laughs> a couple of years ago, and this is only a couple of years ago, I won by hiding in our wheelie bin and, uh, and even getting one of the bin bags out and popping it back on top of me so that uh, I couldn't be found. I was in there for a long time before the kids gave up and did the old come out, come out, wherever you are, that kind of thing. I had good hiding places there. I was committed to it, and so I was safe, and I won. But neither of those places that I was thinking of there were comfortable places to be. They were hot, they were smelly. Uh, the experience of hiding 
was unpleasant. The relief when finally got out of there was great as you sort of stretch at last and you get the blood pumping to your legs again and you can breathe properly. Well, believe it or not, that does have something to do with Psalm 32 because King David talks in this psalm about hiding and he talks about hiding in similar ways. He talks about hiding in the ways that are wonderful (laughs) and he talks about hiding in ways that are horrible, uncomfortable, not a pleasant place to be, a nice place to get out from. That's how he talks about these things and we'll we'll come to that as we we go along. First of all, we're going to see in this beginning bit, kind of, it's a bit like how I sounded when I came out of the bin. That sort of joy at finally no longer needing to be in there. As he starts off by saying how good it is to be forgiven. It's so good to be forgiven. It's better than, you know, being, uh, being just able to stand up straight and being free like that. It is good to be forgiven. Have a look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It's so good to have all of that behind me and done and dusted and sorted. We might ask ourselves, who are the ones who are blessed? Who are the ones who've got it really good, whose lives are going well? Who, who is it? Is it the people who are very successful? Is it the people who never make any mistakes? Well, according to this psalm, the blessed ones are the forgiven ones. That's what it means to be really blessed. It's just so good to be forgiven. I wonder if that's your experience, whether this is a psalm that you feel like you could sing as you delight in the fact that your sins have been dealt with. Because we are sinners, each one of us. We, we break God's laws. We fail to meet his standards. None of us can honestly say we don't need forgiveness. Our sin stands as a stain on our record. It's, it's a deficit in our account, if you like. But forgiveness means that that deficit is cancelled out. Have a look in verse 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. That's accounting language, isn't it? There is a debt, there is a payment, there is a big negative number. But when God comes to tot it all up, He doesn't count it against us. He doesn't put it in our column. Instead, he counts us as righteous. That is a fantastic thing. It is good, isn't it? It's so good to be forgiven. And this psalm tells us a bit about how that can happen. He says, oh, isn't it wonderful to be forgiven? Well, how on earth do you get that? How does our sin get dealt with? Well, as we go on in the psalm, we see we must admit our sin. That's how forgiveness comes to us. We must admit our sin. Ad- admitting it, confessing it, owning up is the only way that forgiveness will come to us. See, verse 3 and 4 describe David's life before he was confessing his sin. That, that might be describing life before someone's a Christian. Or it might even describe a period of life as a Christian when we're sinning deliberately and not repenting of it. What was that like for David? Well, it wasn't good. He was trying to hide. He was trying to pretend he was fine. He was keeping quiet about his sins as if God hadn't noticed, and it didn't work. So have a look in verse 3. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That sense of guilt was overwhelming. He was saying it was like a wasting disease right down to his bones. Or it was a bit like being a traveller in the desert, just desperate for a drop of water. That being wrapped with guilt. And I wonder, maybe he didn't put it down to guilt at first, but something is not right. He doesn't quite feel himself. His sense of closeness to God is gone. The joy is gone. Instead of his, God's hand lifting him up, he feels God's hand weighing heavy on him. But still, he keeps pretending. He still keeps hiding. It's not a comfortable place to be squashed down in there, but he stays in there hiding. Maybe this will be fine. But it gets worse and worse and worse. His experience of hiding his sin, hiding from God, staying as quiet as a mouse, it is killing him until he admits his sin. We suddenly get to verse 5 and it all changes. It says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That is an enormous relief, isn't it? That pressure of squashing it all down, of suppressing the truth, if you like, it was too strong. Like that kind of bending yourself in half inside a bin. You can't keep it up forever. At some point, we are going to need to come out of hiding. We're going to need to admit where we really are. And the fantastic news of this psalm is that when we do, we're forgiven. We think, don't we, that if we own up, we will be in trouble. That is often how it works, isn't it? Come on, own up. Who, who did it? Who did it? And if we admit it, well, then we'll be in trouble. We, so, so sometimes we daren't be honest. But God knows our guilt already, and so he wants us to admit it, not to rub our noses in it, but so that he can forgive us. It's so ironic in this psalm, isn't it? Verse 1 talks about the blessing of having our sins covered, and yet verse 5 tells us that's only possible when we stop covering it up. I did not cover up my iniquity because I stopped covering it up. You did cover it up. You actually dealt with it properly. It's when we stop hiding it that our sin gets taken away and hidden for good. And this is the good news, isn't it? This is not just a thing that David knew. This is what we know today as Christians. This is what Jesus does for us with our sin. In the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul wants to explain justification by faith in Christ alone. This is the psalm that he quotes. So in Romans 4, verses 4 to 8, he's talking about the difference between working for your salvation and just being given it by faith. He says this, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin 
the Lord will never count against them. So you see, this is the gospel here, saying that our sins deserve the wages of that work, that is death. But instead, through faith in Jesus, we're given righteousness as a gift. So when our faith is in Jesus, our sin is not counted against us. Instead, his righteousness is counted as ours. And that is total forgiveness, isn't it? Complete forgiveness. And that only comes to people who admit their sin. In whose spirit there is no deceit, verse 2. They are not pretending, they're not hiding, they are completely honest. I am a sinner, I admit it, and I'm sorry. It's only then that there's hope for us. It's a bit like they say Alcoholics Anonymous. The first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. It's, It's the same with this. The only hope we have of forgiveness is coming forward and admitting it before God, knowing that he forgives our sin in Christ. And so the application is is quite obvious, isn't it? What should we do? Well, don't be stubborn. Confess. If when we admit our sins, he forgives us, what, what are you doing? What are you dawdling for? Let's go and confess our sins. That's where he goes in verse 6, isn't it? Therefore, so I've said all this, that was my experience, it was awful until I admitted my sin and he forgave me. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. He's saying pray, admit it, come before God, confess your sins. Because when we do that, this becomes true of us. That while there is still time, while he may still be found, we pray to him. And it goes on in verse 6. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So when we confess our sins, we find Jesus to be our hiding place. A bomb shelter, a refuge, a safe place above the floodwaters that are below. That is Jesus for us. Not a cramped sort of hiding place where we actually are desperate to get out, but a home in the midst of the chaos where we are surrounded in the best possible way and we're protected, we're kept from harm, we're kept from judgment, we're kept from what we deserve. We're being told here to give up our rubbish hiding places of hiding from God and instead find him to be our resting place. So we're told to confess, to admit it, to not be stubborn. See that in verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they'll not come to you. Don't be like that. Now, there'll be people here who know more about horses uh, than I do. Uh, But I know this. Horses don't generally just do as they're told. You've got to tell them very, very clearly. And even then, they don't always do it. You need to put a bit in their mouth, a little bit of metal that sits neatly uh, behind some of their teeth. And the bit connects to the bridle, all the straps around their heads. And when you've got the reins attached to the bridle, attached to the bit, you can steer the horse where it needs to go, or so I'm told. You can't just have a word with it quietly and have the horse do exactly as it's told first time. They need that bit and that bridle. 
And David is saying, don't be like that. Don't be like a donkey who needs to be made to go. The only language it seems to understand is a bit of force. He's saying, if that is us, we're stubborn as a mule and digging in our heels and still trying to pretend, God is able to use the bit and the bridle to make us turn. And that's what David was experiencing, wasn't it? That, that guilt, that loss of joy. He's saying, don't make God have to do that. Don't keep wandering off into sin and requiring God to bring us back with a heavy hand. When we could just turn back to him now. We're being told here, don't be stubborn. Don't be like that. Let's just confess. Let's admit our sins readily, easily. Knowing that he's more willing to forgive than we are to repent. Verse 10 talks about how many the woes of the wicked are. And it could be that many of those woes are God's bit and bridle, if you like, trying to turn them around. Except they won't turn. Whereas God's people do respond in repentance and faith without always needing to be dragged, kicking and screaming. It says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So I wonder, are we currently in hiding? Sinning in secret as if God can't see us? Refusing to turn back and repent? How's that working out for us? It's an uncomfortable place. And it's meant to be uncomfortable because sin is not where we belong. So I wonder whether tonight would be a good time for us to admit that sin. Certainly admit it to God. Maybe we need to have a chat with another Christian as well so we can get some help, get some prayer. But whatever it is, let's not be stubborn. Let's confess. Let's admit our sins. And we do that knowing how good it is to be forgiven. That it is actually a joyful thing. We think I'm having lots of fun sinning and then I had to stop. And that's a shame, but I probably should. And, and David just turns that completely upside down and says, no, it was miserable, pretending I was fine and squashing it all down. But when I finally admitted it, ah, oh, verse 11, rejoice in the Lord, be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you upright in heart. Because we're the blessed ones, we really are. We really are. Not blessed are the perfect, blessed are the forgiven. So why don't we pray that we would find that hiding place in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word and how it tells us clearly who the blessed ones are, who the happy ones are. It is the ones who know that they are sinners, who are not trying to hide it, but instead are turning to you. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who has done everything necessary to be our hiding place. Please help us to turn away from sin and trust in him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.